Welcome to another episode of the Canna Book Club presented by Resonate Radio. It's part two of the special, The Bud Rot Pathogens Infecting Cannabis Inflorescences, Symptomology, Species Identification, Pathogenicity, and Biological Control. We have again Dr. Zamir Punja, who is a professor of plant pathology and biotechnology at Simon Fraser University in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. His expertise is in plant pathogens, tissue culture, and molecular biology. He obtained his Master of Science and PhD degrees from the University of California, Davis. Always exciting to bring you the insights of Dr. Zamir Punja, and today is no exception. Happy New Year, everybody. It is wonderful to have you here again for a wonderful episode. Again, this is going to be a little bit of a busy front end to the year. Might take a break again in the after part of it. We got a year in review that we're going to present to you a little bit later on so you can find out what is going on, what happened during the last half of the year, middle half of the year, whatever happened. 2022 was a blur. Excited for 2023. Just having a ton of fun working at Pure Sun Farms and uh, doing a lot of things in the nursery to make sure that our flower rooms are full so we can bring you wonderful product in Canada and Australia and a few other places. It's exciting times here in the cannabis industry for sure. Anyway, let's get down to it. Dr. Zamir Punja. Dr. Anibis has a question. After... We get Dr. Zamir to do the most important part, which is introduce himself. I can't believe that I forgot to do that in part one. <laughs> I just feel, you know, I see him so much. It's, it's just a little bit informal that in that conversation. So don't worry. He's going to give a little introduction. And then Dr. Anibis, with her question that she's just chomping at the bit with. Here we go, folks. Another episode of the Canada Book Club. Let's get to it. Well, hi. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Zamir Punja. And I am a professor of plant pathology, uh, which means I study plant diseases uh, at Simon Fraser University uh, in British Columbia. I did my um, graduate training at University of California, Davis. I worked on a number of different plant species there and then uh, went to North Carolina, North Carolina State in Raleigh, and spent a few years there working on vegetable diseases. I actually worked with a large company, uh, Campbell Soup Company, and I actually have a beautiful hat that says Campbell's Soup on it, I, I, if I can find it one of these days. And the idea was to make their vegetables better and, and you know, good quality for soups and so on. And then I joined uh, Simon Fraser University working on, again, vegetable diseases, crop diseases. And about five years ago, I got um, asked to start working on cannabis diseases. And it's probably the highlight of my career is being able to switch to a crop where very little is known, very little has been done. And there's so much more to do. And that's kind of where I've spent the last five years. Uh, funding uh, that for the research is actually coming from the government of Canada and a lot of uh, licensed producers, private companies that realize how valuable it is to do research. So uh, the fact that we have legalized cannabis makes it easy for us to work on this plant. And it also provides a good support of funding for my students. Uh, it's a really popular topic with students. When I mention I've got a project on cannabis, there's like five students lined up, lined up outside my door because, again, it's exciting for them as well. So it's a great opportunity for me to talk to all of you today, and uh, I appreciate being invited. So thank you, Corey, and, and everybody else that's on this panel. So I have a question. So you said that um, you're not aware of anything that it's just totally unique to cannabis. Um, 
What about, and this is a virus, not like a mold or anything, but what about um, hemp streak virus and hemp mosaic virus that have just recently popped up? Are those unique to cannabis or are they like a mutant strain of some other virus that has previously been infecting something else and it's now going to cannabis? Like, do you, can you, do you have any, I'm not, I'm not really well versed on pathogens. (laughs) No, it's a good question, and, and I'm glad you brought up the virus, even though, you know, we're talking about botrytis. Now, with botrytis, it's it's a zero-sum game because it's got over a 1,000 hosts. So anything you plant nearby is going to potentially spread spores to your cannabis plant. With the viruses, though, uh, many of them do have, you know, a, range, a host range that's also very wide. And so the two that you mentioned, the hemp streak and the mosaic, I don't know right now that we we have enough information on them in, in terms of their genetic characterization, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if when they do get figured out that they also came from another plant. Uh, and even though the name says hemp streak, it may actually be perhaps a, a, a mutant strain, let's say alfalfa mosaic, or some other virus that we do know exists, but we haven't yet characterized on on cannabis. Um, the one that I'm fighting now is tobacco mosaic. And I get asked this all the time, Do, does cannabis get tobacco mosaic? And, uh, and my first answer is yes, it's got a, it's got a tobacco mosaic infects 500 plants. But I haven't yet proven that we do have tobacco mosaic, at least the tobacco mosaic strain that's already been described before. We may have a strain that has co-evolved to f- infect cannabis and is genetically slightly different from what's already described out there. So unlike the, the fungi, like what Casey just talked about, there's enough sequences in GenBank that something will match. With the viruses, it's a little bit different, I think. And we might find that there's more diversity in the genetic makeup of these viruses because they change so much. And again, going back to COVID, what we have now in 2022 is different from what started the epidemic in 2020. It's a different strain, it's mutated. So we may have mutated strains of viruses in cannabis that are a little bit unique, but still they came from another plant. See, and I've always been under the um, impression that cannabis doesn't, at least not easily get tobacco mosaic virus. And most of the tobacco mosaic virus diagnoses out there are actually just either natural variegation or some kind of other like mosaic virus or hot latent virus or something like that. But then Corey comes along and tells me that's not true. You're seeing tons of tobacco mosaic virus in Canada. And now Dr. Punja, you're saying you can't, you haven't proven it yet, but it could be some sort of uh, mutated version of tobacco mosaic virus that is now able to infect cannabis, which makes I, a I, lot of sense to me. Yeah. I think tobacco mosaic is out there. So we, we can definitely rest assured on that. I just don't have the, the tools or haven't quite uh, understood how, how slightly different it might be from what else is out there. So for example, when I, if I take a sequence of tobacco mosaic from tomato and I try to match it up with the cannabis, I can't. So that tells me that there's, there's been some divergence. There's been some change in that virus. But boy, the symptoms sure look like TMV. They look like what you see on TMV on tomato. And if you didn't tell me it was a cannabis leaf, I would have told you that it looks like a tomato leaf with TMV. But So I'm pretty sure it's there. And not only that, but there's four or five other viruses that are, are there. But because viruses have to have a living host, they, they have to live on a host to, to survive, 
I think they've adapted themselves more than things like botrytis and sclerotinia and fusarium that are just kind of wandering around in the air and all of a sudden they land on a cannabis plant and they go, oh, it's a food source, I'm going to infect it. Uh, the viruses, I think, are a little bit more specialized. And as a geneticist, I would say, well, if you can't match the sequence, then you don't have a match. It's got to be some other kind of something. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah. So, if, if you're not, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, if you're not amplifying the, the even, if, you know, if you're not amplifying the right area of the sequence, then they're not going to match in, in, yes. in GenBank either. So, like, yeah. I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, correct. And so, you know, by definition, the the species, if you wanted to be called the same species, they say it should be 90, 95% or higher. The, the sequence match should be 90, 95% or higher, ideally 98, 99. Um, and, of course, people are going to get really mad at me because uh, chimpanzees and humans have 99% uh, match, but yet we're completely different organisms. I'm not saying we're all chimpanzees by any means even though our DNA matches 99%, believe it or not. But with these pathogens, we're looking for 95 and higher. And I think, like well, as you just said, when we do get this TMV, I think it's going to be lower than 95. The match will be lower. And that's the reason why we're having difficulty fishing it, finding it out, because the sequences just aren't lining up yet properly. Basically, it rebuilds itself to fit to be able to infect that host in the in the way that it needs to. It's pretty interesting. Also kind of cool. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what comes out with this because I've always been interested in tobacco mosaic virus and how prolific people think it is and yet no one is actually getting like positive tests for it. They're not able to blast for it. So I'm thinking it's something that's not quite tobacco mosaic virus, but it's a virus. Of course it's gonna evolve relatively quickly in order to keep doing what it does best, which is infecting things, right? So yeah, well, what makes what makes it challenging is there are these there are mutations in the plant uh, that cause these uh, changes, mosaic and so on. And sometimes you do get fooled into thinking it's TMV when actually it's a, it's a mutation. But I, I find when you look at it carefully the, the mutations, the the areas that are affected tend to tend to continue on. They're sort of follow the leaf vein or they're 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 not random, they're not random. Right. Whereas with TMV, the spots, the the, the mosaic that you see, it's is a true mosaic. It's a random uh, concept. Uh, but but I agree, some of the mutations in the plant can be very confusing. Mm-hmm. I I can I can tell like looking at a plant if it's like a viral infection or if it's just you know like a mutation like a um, variegation. But it's really hard to explain to somebody what you're looking for. Like I'm like it's kind of symmetrical, but it's like, I don't even know. <laughs> and, and the one thing you will know if it's a virus is it spreads, okay? So if you've got a couple mm-hmm. of plants, leave them for a while, come back to them, and I'll bet you you'll find it's now moved on to three or four other plants. That's what we see. We see a whole bunch of plants in a row that have this mosaic. So it can't be a mutation that's jumping around. It's something that's mm-hmm. moving by hand. Obviously, TMB I- moves by hand, right? So Or with tools. So that's one other thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to sit and watch this virus spread. But if you do see it on more than one plant, it's probably spreading. Unless it's a natural variegation in that particular cannabis strain. Like there's been strains that I've grown that have a natural variegation in them. And I can't imagine how many plants have just been thrown away because people thought they had a viral infection. And what they really had was a really cool leaf patterning that could have made a very unique strain that people would have 
you know, love because people like all these novel colors and whatnots. So you know what I what I did is is because we had this so-called TMV, we'll call it TMV, or we can call it a, mos- a mosaic. I took leaves from a plant that had these symptoms, and I took leaves from another plant that was completely dark green, and I sent them off for nutrient testing. Because so I said to myself, mm-hmm. what is this yellowing doing, this mosaic, whether it's a mutation or whether it's a virus? How is it affecting the nutrient status of that leaf? And I was really surprised to find all the nutrients, NPK, calcium, magnesium, silicon, boron, were down about 8 to 10% in those leaves that had this mosaic versus a healthy green leaf. So regardless of what it is, whether it's TMV or whether it's a, it's a genetic mutation, it is altering the amount of nutrients that the leaf is able to keep or take up and retain. So let's say it's well, down you're by... Missing, I mean, you're missing chlorophyll, right? You're missing chloroplast exactly. in a lot of those cells. All those cells that are exactly. making that what white color are missing stuff. They can't actually function as part of the plant. They're just pretty. Exactly. It's pretty, but it's, it does, it's not helping the plant, right? Um, right. So if you've got 10% less chlorophyll, then it's, it's picking up less 10% less nutrients. And eventually your buds are going to show the, the effect. They might be slightly smaller, uh, maybe not as fully developed. And so there is, there's definitely an effect, a negative effect over time to allowing these mutations or viruses to build up. So, I mean, throwing the plants away is, it might, it might sound a bit uh, brutal, but it's probably a good thing to do. Just just get rid of them and start start fresh. Kill it with fire, fire, fire. <laughs> Me, I la- <laughs> I'm so curious, though. I would probably, like, take them and isolate them and, and be like, what is this? What's going on with this plant? There's a research assistant I- we have that tries to steal all the plants <laughs> that I tried to kill before I get them to the uh, destruction bin. Dr. Poonja is well aware of this. <laughs> yeah, so, so Corey's got this bag of plants, and he goes, we got to get this out of here, and he gets stopped halfway down. We want those. We want those because they're for research. And he goes, all right, here you go. And somehow we, we, well, we, don't, take, we don't take the whole bag. We, we take a few leaves so we can see what, what was there. Just like measuring THC and terpenes, um, it is going to be, in some cases, dependent on the lab, and the methods that they use. And, you know, if you're testing for yeast and mold, you might find this variation. Similarly with these pathogen tests, particularly, for, again, for the viruses, like I said, with, with the fungi or the, the things like botrytis, because there's all these matches of sequences to GenBank, uh, we can be pretty confident that we're getting the right organism. With the viruses, it's, it's less so because we haven't had time to necessarily explore the diversity in the genetic makeup. I would be more worried about um, a, a false negative um, than I would necessarily a false positive. So false positive basically says you've got it when actually you don't. Now, that happens very rarely because for these tests to work, they're, they're, they're detecting something from the, from the pathogen, whether it's a virus or whether it's a piece of protein. or It's, it's again, kind of like the COVID test, right? If you get that, that COVID test, those two bands show up, you're not going to look at that and go, nah, you know, I feel great. This test is wrong. Um, the, the test is right. I'm sorry. Maybe you're, you're you know, a really strong guy and, and you can resist the symptoms, but it's a positive. But on the other hand. Pregnancy tests too. Pregnancy tests Oh, those, too. Are, like even, those, are, those are even scarier. <laughs> because if you, I get a false, like you, you can't get a false positive. It's testing for a no. hormone that the I, fetus is producing. Yeah. If you don't I, have a fetus, you can't test positive. Yeah, and I, I swear, negative. And I and I still remember that test thirty two years ago when I when my wife did it. <laughs> and, she came, 
and she came out of the bathroom and she was pale. And I go, what the, mm. and she goes, well, it's here. It's on its way. I says, what are you talking about? She goes, the baby's on its way. And sure enough, it was, a, as you said, uh, uh, Dr. Anibis, it, it was a positive. Now, <laughs> when you get a negative, okay, so you got to, and again, going back to COVID, you get a negative COVID test, as you know, boy, I feel like shit. I mean, I, I can't breathe. My body hurts, but it's telling me it's negative. That's a false negative. I think we're seeing a lot of that in cannabis. We're assuming that, okay, the plants do great. You know, and people have said, I, I did test it. Guys, I sent you a thousand plants and we tested them and it's negative. And now you're telling me that you're finding a positive. How's that possible? Because you had a false negative. That's the only answer or the lab didn't have the right uh, uh, tools. So, or yes, testing for the wrong thing. Or the, yeah, yeah. So when you do get a positive, I, be, I believe in, in that 99% of the time it's a good positive. But when I get a negative, I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Something's wrong here. I need to test it again. Okay, let's get off the subject of pregnancies because, I mean, we, we, could, um, <laughs> we could get into a lot of trouble here. <laughs> yeah, we could uh, go back to some botrytis. Um, I'm going to jump over to the pathogenicity and growth of botrytis. And, I mean, basically, B. cinerea is the worst. It's the most virulent, most damaged. Um, in a scale, it goes B. cinerea, B. pseudocinerea, and then B. porii. And what I, I love this graph that kind of shows like how active it was by temperature. And basically, each of those species have the same, generally the same virulence of activity. Um, they all pretty much um, cap up at um, around 20 to 25 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and you can't really get any activity at 30 degrees Celsius or 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So a good kind of guide to <laughs> what temperatures are going to affect these pathogens Maybe a good line of defense, but kind of just letting you know if you're getting into those that middle temperature you're you're at risk <laughs> and then um just those are some gnarly botrytis it looks like it's just covered in spider webs it's crazy yeah so so let, let me just add a couple of things it, it was good to actually show that these other botrytis species are not as aggressive because again, I don't want to start pointing fingers at blueberry growers or, uh, you know, cabbage growers and other people that are planting their crops next to cannabis uh, and saying that these diseases are moving over. These species like Pseudocinerea and Porii are not as aggressive on, on cannabis as you can see in, the, in those graphs. The most aggressive is the Cinerea. So, you know, unless they haven't had time to adapt themselves, right, to, to cannabis. Maybe if we go back in five years and look for pseudocinerea, maybe it's going to be as aggressive as, as cinerea. I don't know. But for now, they, they look like they're not as harmful. The temperature one was quite a surprise because I didn't think that it would drop off so dramatically at 30. Now, 30 is warm, right? That's 30 degrees centigrade is about 90, uh, 90 Fahrenheit, close to 90, 88, 90. It's warm, but you know a lot of fungi can grow at ninety. It's no big deal. But botrytis is a cool is a cool weather disease. Uh, it's cool and wet, and so it loves the fall. It loves the fall, and in the spring, it probably doesn't have enough time to get going. 
you know, the plants are just starting to come up outdoors. Uh, they just starting to come up. We don't see too many botrytis diseases unless you get the cool wet springs that we did this year in, in British Columbia, where all my geraniums got wiped out with botrytis. There was spores everywhere because it was cool and wet into, into June. But normally on cannabis or hemp, you won't find botrytis until it starts cooling off. You know, so maybe July, but most likely August, September, October, November is when it, it starts picking up. And that's because of that temperature response. The minute it clicks 30, uh, it starts to die off. Now, that would mean if you grew outdoors in the summer and into the early fall, if your temperatures stayed high, you could avoid botrytis. But the problem, of course, is that if you're outdoors, you're not harvesting till maybe October, November, and the rain starts and the temperature drops. And then all of a sudden, within a matter of a week, you could get wiped out by, by gray mold. So the temperature um, is interesting. It basically tells us, don't worry, about, don't worry about botrytis when it's hot. Worry about it when it's cool. My strawberries actually got completely annihilated by botrytis last, um, I think it was mid-October. They were ever-bearing, growing really well the entire summer, and then all of a sudden, it just like happened like over one week. Like all of a sudden, all of the fruit that was there started going gray so quick. And like I was curious to see because it was so much of it. I was like, I'm going to see how kind of progresses and it almost turned the fruit into dust because like that's how like bad it was it was so like it was so dark gray that it was almost black at one point but if you like touched it it completely started like falling apart as if it was completely dry so i thought that was pretty interesting it was in research purposes to just let one berry go and see how far it goes <laughs> Yeah, and, and I haven't quite figured out how many spores, but we'll assume there's billions of spores coming off those plants. I mean, literally, this thing is—it's—it's it's really meant—it's meant to survive. I mean, its reproductive cap capacity is phenomenal, and it also produces a bunch of these enzymes, which is, is what causes this tissue to start breaking down and getting soft and so on. Um, if if any, any of you have made jam at home. You know, you've got to cook that that material so that you destroy the enzymes that might be there. Uh, if you don't get rid of the enzymes, you won't you won't actually get jam. You'll get a liquid, uh, a fruit liquid that's that never forms up because the enzymes are killed, have have not been destroyed. That's what botrytis does. It's literally creating its own soup, and and just destroying that that plant material by producing all these enzymes that that are, are mushing. And, that, and the same occurs on cannabis, though. Those buds eventually are soft. Oh, man. Okay, so then basically you're going into the sclerotinia and the diaporeth. Um, one thing about sclerotinia you mentioned is that you're, you see, like, white mycelial tufts that you don't really see in botrytis. Uh, and then in the diaporth, um, these were in indoor greenhouses and hemp. And you can see those in the figures, um, just a lot of infection going on there. Um, but nothing, I mean, kind of the same. It's a little more interesting than botrytis, but just in a different way. And then 
Next interesting, awesome thing, the efficacy of biocontrol agents in reducing pathogen growth. So figure 10, we've got awesome microbiological warfare petri dishes going on. So basically you stuck the, the biocontrol with the pathogen on a petri dish to kind of see what happened. And you can see like clear lines of division where one's like encroaching on the next and there is that line um but in some cases they just kind of grow over each other like you can see in d e and f um anything stick out to you dr punja on these yeah so this is a really cool method um to tell which which competing fungi or possibly a biological control agent is what we call an antagonist and we always think of the word antagonist uh, as something that wants to fight. You know, uh, in, in my opinion, Putin, Putin is, a, is a severe antagonist because he wants to take on the world. Um, and that's what he's doing. He's fighting with the rest of us. But these Petri dishes are just one way to, to demonstrate whether or not a particular fungus or bacterium is an antagonist. And so when you look at these zones, the idea is that the further along the antagonist moves from the top to the bottom, the, the better antagonist, at least on a Petri dish, it's going to end up being. Um, and this type of assay, you know, was, was used back in 1940 by a researcher called Fleming who, who discovered penicillin. He discovered the antibiotic penicillin because in one of his plates, he had the fungus penicillium growing. And he noticed that when, when you've got this penicillium on the plate, nothing else grew around it. Nothing else. It had formed this zone that said, you know, stay away from me. And when he when he purified what chemical was in that Petri dish, he found out it was the antibiotic penicillin. So these kinds of studies are great. I mean, in the sense that they can show you what potentially could be a good biocontrol agent. Not always. Not always. So the, the, the green one, of course, that's trichoderma. You can see how aggressive it is. It, it's a super antagonist. I mean, it, it's grown all the way across the plate to the other side. Uh, the ones at the top, you can't really see them on, on this view here, but th that's a, a bacterium called Bacillus right there. And you can see the Bacillus has created a zone. It's a, a zone of no interference. And the reason it did that is, is it's, it's secreting these antibiotics that are actually halting the growth of the botrytis. It can't get any closer. So the idea is, if we had bacillus or trichoderma in the flower, in a cannabis flower, would it do the same thing? Would it create these, these zones? Or would it be a super antagonist in the flower and prevent botrytis from getting on? So that was what we were trying to, uh, we were trying to show. And, um, well, I guess we'll get to it. But the answer is yes. If you're a good antagonist on a Petri dish, you should be a good antagonist on a cannabis flower. Oh yeah, and we got a nice little graph there on figure 11. So you, you see the control was very diseased, but all three of the treatments were successful at treating. And we've got the best was Stargus, which is the Bacillus amyloliquefaciens. Um, and then what do we got next? The Asparello, which is the trichoderma, and the pre-stop was almost as good with the, what was it, the Gliocladium? 
Yeah, so they, they, these are the results that came out of the, the experiment. I think the, the, the key here to remember is that for the antagonist to really work well, it has to become established before before the botrytis gets there. If you see botrytis and you go, oh boy, I got blood rot, you can't reach out or you shouldn't reach out for aspirella or, or pre-stop and put it on expecting that it's going to work. It has to be applied early. And we've got some experiments going on now to determine how early is early. Like, you know, over a seven-week flowering period, when would you necessarily have to apply the biological control agents? And um, some of the work that's ongoing with, with, with Corey's uh, colleagues and others is, is kind of showing us that the earlier, the better. The earlier, the better. Because you, you want to get those, these microbes established in the flower so that they are truly antagonist. They're not just kind of, they're not a predator, right? A predator would be something that comes in afterwards and takes over. An antagonist is hopefully something that's already there and is fighting is fighting anything that tries to get in early. Um, we think botrytis starts around week five, okay? Week four or week five in the flowering cycle. So your antagonist has to get there in week three and week four. And you might be thinking, boy, that's a small flower. It is. It's a small flower. But it's got to be there early uh, in order to be effective against this humongous pathogen that's going to start uh, growing all over your flowers. And is, it there... safe to be, is it safe to be treating the flowers with this? Um, that's my question, too. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you're... Yes. Are there any concerns, of... or is it just like... <laughs> No, so these are registered with Health Canada as well. That's the reason why we use these ones that are in here, especially like the Asparello. There's different sources or different strains of trichoderma that we use. Asparello is approved one from different vendors um, out here that do biocontrols. I mean, safe to smoke. I, eh, how would I put this? I guess in pretty blunt terms, I would trust the use of these products over <laughs> other products that were used in the black market for a long time. You know, it's it's not really that bad in that sort of way. It's a better case scenario I mean, than smoking probably the mycotoxins that are coming from the fusarium or the botrytis right? infection. We learned that we, we shouldn't be spraying things on, on things that we're going to smoke because they change composition and whatever, like things that are safe for fruits and vegetables aren't necessarily safe for something that we're going to be lighting on fire and inhaling. So, like, we don't use Eagle 20 anymore for good reasons, but have we tested this product in terms of lighting it on fire and inhaling it? Or, and or, uh, and not trying to start a fight with anybody here, not that you guys would fight me on this, but I know people who listen to this might, but blood washing. Can you wash this stuff off once, you know, like before you dry it? Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so the first thing uh, is to confirm what Corey said and that, that these products are registered uh, by Health Canada. And I'm assuming uh, that what they've done is they've used safety data from other plants. So it doesn't address your question on is it safe to smoke. We'll come to that. But if it's on the surface of the bud, if it's on the surface of the fruit, if it's a tomato, uh, and and you're able to eat the tomato and you forgot to wash it, you're going to be fine. And so if you were to use that that bud, presumably it's okay because the safety data on these products has been tested elsewhere. I don't think necessarily 
that the safety data has been developed specifically on cannabis because it, it costs way too much money to, to do the kind of residue analyses and safety analyses when they've already been done on tomato and potato or something else. Now, when, when the bud is lit up or the, the, the material is lit up, that fire is pretty intense. I mean, the, the heat from that is definitely going to kill off whatever spores or mycelium, whatever is still left in that bud that, that's found naturally. So I, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that when it's heated to that, to that temperature, it's, it's destroyed. Now, a lot, of it, a lot of these antagonists, because they're antagonists, are able to survive in the flower. You want them to survive, but that also means you could fail your yeast and mold test. Okay, we we have some really good evidence that some of these biocontrol agents will will increase the yeast and mold level even after harvest in the in the dry bud, to where potentially it's getting pretty close to your limit, because it's there. I mean, you want it to be there. It's growing. It's it's whatever. It's doing its own thing. So you do have higher levels of mold, if you want to call it that. Trichoderma is a mold. Um, but it's still passing, but you got more there. But again, I think the safe, the, the, it's safe to say that the heat from, from lighting it or burning it um, will destroy whatever, whatever uh, spores are going to be there. There are going to be spores there. If you took some of that dried bud and put it on a Petri dish like we do, I'll bet you anything you can get trichoderma and, and bacillus out of there. It, that's the whole idea. It's like cheese, right? You got, you got penicillium and mold in cheese. You take a little piece of cheese and put it on a petri dish, it's going to get covered in mold. And we eat that penicillium all the time. I do. Blue cheese, beautiful. It's All that mold is being ingested in my stomach. No problems. I don't have any issues with with uh, any any side effects. So, yes. Would you, would you smoke blue cheese? No. I would. Okay. If you could. I mean, it's a pretty interesting <laughs> question. But I think, like, because um, I'm looking at Stargus, it's a bacillus right so yeah that's a bacterium that will colonize the roots of the plants to help reduce plant disease um by direct and indirect action it doesn't leave the residue that's another thing that stargus mentions um so i think like i feel like this i would be more comfortable with um than like a lot of the stuff that is being like sprayed for like powdery mildew or like the amount of sulfur that some of the places are burning i probably would be more worried about those than this stuff because it, it just seems like it's like a bacterium that's trying to battle the fungus so i don't think it would be having as a you know bad of an effect on your health plus a lot of the products in the market as a precaution go through irradiation so that's like an additional step to get rid of any possible like pathogens that could be harmful for us. So in Canada, at least, I'd probably be, you know, comfortable with saying that this is safe. Um, if you're doing it at home, I'm, I'm not really sure how that would go. But that would be interesting to do like another, you know, study. Well, and, and, like, and like how much do you, like what is the concentration of the treatment that you're putting on because if you put too much on versus if you're not, you know, putting enough on, you know, there like there's like a line you have to walk there too. So more research is needed. <laughs> the key is always follow the label recommendations, right? Um, sometimes people get a little bit uh, over over carried away and they go, well, if they say one percent, I'm sure if I put two percent, it's going to work even better. That's not the case. So 
So yeah, so that's that's why Dr. Anibis that these products specifically require you to go through a pesticide applicator course. These are all these are all commercially labeled. Yeah, these are all commercially labeled products. So that's the important part. You can't just go to. I know. I'm not. I'm not known for my um, attention to detail or following directions or reading the manual or any of those things. I'm always like, <laughs> if you know, more is better. Somehow it always works out for me. But yeah, this is why they don't let me do plant stuff. <laughs> it's important to know too that people can't just go to Home Depot and buy some of this stuff too. You know, they won't be putting themselves <laughs> in danger because there is a little bit of a risk, of course. You know, but you do, you know, you got to go through the training and apply, especially pre-stop Asperello and Stargus. You have to have the license in order to make, I just got recertified. I'm good for another five years. I did good. Do you, Casey, do you know if they have the same sort of training um, requirements in the U.S.? I feel like no. California for sure. You have to, there's a pesticide applicator course that you have to go through the state of California. That's super rigorous, a little bit more intense for us, but it teaches you how to do that. Like mix everything together and use the PPE and stuff like that. Um, And because I know like across Canada, for example, there's a a maritime license. There's a one that's different in Atlantic Canada versus here um, in British Columbia as well. So I know it's kind of regulated through the agriculture boards. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, for example, the Oregon State Agriculture Board had a different pesticide applicator program um, from the state of California, for example. And our grow is fully, fully organic. So we don't, we can't put anything on our plants anyway. So I don't even need to know about this stuff for our cultivation. Beneficial bugs or pesticides. I win the end. Mike, drop them gone. <laughs> Bye, Corey. <laughs> And and let's not forget, I mean, Health Canada is is quite a conservative uh, organization in that they wouldn't recommend some of these products until they feel pretty certain that they're going to be safe. I mean, they they won't even let us use things like bleach and other things that we use at home because, you know, they've got to be tested and certified. So when they came through and approved, I don't know, I think there's probably at least nine or ten biological products now for diseases and insects on cannabis. Uh, We're lucky to have access to those because... It's, at some point, they will they will be allowed or will can be used on organic production as well. So, you you might find that there's some other um, advantages to having these biological products for for organic growers. I think we're definitely a fan of safety. I think we're at 44 now that we're allowed to use. When they first passed our cannabis legislation up here, we were only allowed to use 17 products. I believe it was 17. It was definitely under 20. So within a year and a half, they've given us a few more, but it's been very, uh, we have to think outside the box for sure. Shall we go to the discussion? Are you done, Casey? I'm pretty done. Basically, y'all at home should just look at these awesome scanning electron microscopy photos, especially figure 13 with all these spores all over these trichomes i think they just look so cool i mean trichomes already look cool without spores on them but you can literally see on f there's spores and then like a, a canidia it looks awesome also looks ter- terrifying because it's botrytis and stuff but <laughs> oh and then also focus um if we want to look at strain morphology, um, you look at figure 15 and kind of just the main thing there is going back to those bracts 
and pink kush um phenotypically has more bracts compared to the other sampled strains and it also tends to be more of a victim to severe bud rot so that's an interesting finding there as well yeah i, th I think the denser those flowers are and, and I, I know that all the growers will already attest to that uh, the more the more clumped or clustered or or however you want to describe these things the more leaves the more leaves they have yeah the, the more the more botrytis they're going to get the ones that are open and more airy uh and allow air to move through and the humidity to dis dissipate uh you're going to get less um less botrytis hmm. <laughs> crazy crazy and yeah let's continue the discussion even further with the actual discussion section <laughs> Well, right. So this is where I pick it up. Um, so I'm just going to highlight some stuff, starting with the temperature. So we've already hit on this a little bit, that uh, there's no growth at 30 degrees Celsius. So um, keeping those higher temperatures and drier climates are going to help with decreasing your chances of getting botrytis. Um, the theory that, you know, Temperatures in the morning and temperatures in the later evening are going to be cooler. So that's where possibly the spores are taking their opportunity. Whereas in the you know heat of the day, this bright sunshine, um, less chance for infection. But more research is needed because um, we don't know when the infections are taking place. Uh, because no prior studies have been conducted to confirm this. And so most of my, like what I got out of the, most of the discussion is more research is needed. So I'm going to kind of highlight all of these areas where you found interesting things and then concluding more research is needed. Um, so the next one is information on the relationship of spore levels and climatic conditions to disease incidents in cannabis inflorescences is currently lacking. Uh, the next one is uh, let's see the next thing I have highlighted. We already touched about the, the blueberries and the other kinds of crops that were growing in close proximity could be the source of where some of these um, pathogens are coming from. That was really interesting because I live near blueberry farms. Um, those darn blueberries. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. <clears throat> mm, all right, the next star I have is that uh, the extent in which mycotoxins are produced in cannabis inflorescences upon infection needs to be evaluated. And the importance of um, crops as sources of inoculum that can spread by wind to infect cannabis plants, as, it, as discussed for botrytis, uh, Sclerotinia and Diaporthae infections needs to be examined further. So where those things are coming from and how they spread, how far they spread, how are they spreading, is it wind, etc. Um, so then there's a couple of places highlighted in the next passage that um, the maturation of the cannabis inflorescence is accompanied by several morphological and physiological changes that could influence the susceptibility. First is those bract leaves. So as we just mentioned, the more dense those buds are going to be, they're going to harbor more moisture. They're going to have less airflow. And so, of course, they're going to have more susceptibility to these molds growing within them. So 
that's definitely going to happen the further along in maturity these flowers get because that's what happens when they get mature. Um, let's see. Ooh. Um, the production and the release of volatile compounds um, are thinking that perhaps that has something to do with it. Um, we did see those spores landing on those trichomes. Perhaps it's the stickiness of the trichomes that the more mature you get, the more sticky trichomes, and then you've got something for those spores to stick to, and they won't just fall off. The, hell yeah, I've landed. Um, so that definitely could be a um, um, consideration for why, how these pathogens are getting taking root and taking control. Um, another area that you highlighted here, it remains to be demonstrated whether higher emissions of terpenes from cannabis inflorescences during maturation or infection are correlated with bud rot disease outbreaks. So that's another area of research that needs to be considered. A comparison of cannabis strains with different profiles of terpene emissions and their responses to botrytis infection may pr produce useful insights. So strains with different cannabinoid and terpene profiles, how do they respond differently to if they have the same flower morphology, I mean, you'd have to keep everything else kind of similar to find out is it the chemical compounds or is it, you know, something else. And then, um, let's see, so I already talked about the trichomes. Um, it's not known if the trichomes and the compounds they produce could alter susceptibility of the cannabis inflorescences to pathogen invasion. So that's kind of what I was, kind of the same thing. Um, these studies point to, and then at the end of this whole paragraph, these studies point to further need to explore the potential role that trichomes produce on BRAC tissues or on cannabis inflorescences may have an altering susceptibility to bud rot and post-harvest pathogens. And the next area, management of bud rot pathogens present a challenge as the specific time during development when infections are occurring has not been determined. So as you said, Dr. Punja, you said you think it's during about the fourth week, I think you said third or fourth week, that the pathogen arrives and then starts to do its thing and then eventually you're gonna see it, but when it actually arrives and starts to take hold is not known at this time. And then, um, let's see. No, since there are no fungicides registered for use on cannabis, environmental management, to produce or to reduce relative humidity during high periods or periods of high susceptibility, sanitary measures such as removal of disease influences, inflorescences, and application of biological control agents remain the only option. So we talked about that a little bit before too, um, about how effective they are, what are the possibilities, how safe are they, but that would also be something to kind of look into as well. And, um, you know, with a, I, I like that you mentioned here, like it doesn't, if, if you're doing it 24 hours prior to or 24 hours after the pathogen inoculation, nothing happens. So you kind of have to get it before then. It needs to be um, proactive, I guess. And then, um, let's see. The various modes of action described here are likely taking place against botrytis. These are the, the biocontrols, um, but further studies are needed. The timing of application for these biocontrols and products needs to be evaluated. 
And the next star I have is these populations need to be quantified with a view to meeting regulatory requirements, which are based on quantification of total yeast and mold count colony counts, which you mentioned before, is that you could, if you're applying too much, you can fail your, your mold and yeast count. Um, and just generally, we need more studies, especially looking at um, the commercial growing conditions. So not just one plant, two plants, you know, your backyard grows. You need to look at it on the large scale grow, grow operations and how well these things can translate into actual applications in the real world. Um, and so I'll just read the conclusion, which will sum up everything that we've just talked about. Um, in conclusion, this study has shown that cannabis inflorescences are a hospitable environment, especially as they approach maturity or the establishment of a range of fungal pathogens that have the ability to invade the tissues and cause symptoms of bud rot. Inoculum of these pathogens can originate from neighboring fields in which the crop may be affected by a disease with inoculum subsequently spreading to cannabis plants. The development of B. scenario on the inflorescences is hypothesized to be associated with the development of bract leaves and potentially by emissions of terpenoid compounds and the maturation of trichomes. The establishment of bud rot pathogens, such as B. scenario, can be reduced by preemptive colonizations of the inflorescences with biological control agents, which are able to establish insufficient numbers on the inflorescences. Future research aimed at understanding biochemical basis for susceptibility of the inflorescence to pathogens, as well as the co-contaminant change in host gene expression and associated changes in the composition of the microbiome, should provide useful avenues toward the management of these destructive bud pathogens. I'm done. Wow, you read that back to me, and I can't believe I actually wrote all that stuff. <laughs> it's very nice. That conclusion is very good. You really wrapped it up nicely. I don't know what I was I was thinking, but anyway, um, my my research supervisor always used to tell me uh, when when I finished my PhD, he says it's great. He says you you've answered one really really important question, but a good project is where you've created nine more. That that still need, that. that still need to be answered, and I think you hit upon all those nine. Uh, which we don't have to go into anymore, but certainly, you know, the maturation, the terpenes, um, trichomes themselves. I, I don't believe the resin itself is toxic to fungi. You know, we always hear people talk about, oh, you know, cannabis has evolved, uh, uh, you know, ability to fight off pathogens and diseases and UV and stress. I don't think pathogens is one of them because we wouldn't be seeing all these diseases on the actual flower, which is covered in trichomes. If, if, there, if there was some toxic material in there. So I don't think we, we necessarily selected cannabis for disease resistance. We, we selected it for some mm -hmm. other purpose. And um, I agree. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it might be good against bacteria. So, for example, if you've got inflammation, whatever, and you use uh, cannabis oil or, or extract, you could probably minimize um, uh, bacteria. But, uh, but with fungi, I, I don't think there's they're, – they're completely uh, – they don't care. They don't care if there's – resin there or not they just keep infecting uh, there's definitely no no resistance there um yeah so i think i think you've touched upon a lot of areas that that need work you touched upon a lot i just read it okay <laughs> i'm trying to pass the buck on to you because now we got to hire nine more students to answer all these questions uh, another five years but you know it's really exciting to be on 
in an area where there are unanswered questions. And the same as that researchers are working on COVID. Boy, they're excited as hell because they're finding new stuff all the time, new strains, new this, new that. I find the same with uh, diseases on cannabis. Uh, there's so much to learn. And, you know, growers are really receptive to it. They, they want to know more. They want to produce a better plant. They want to produce a better crop. Like people like Corey, when he sees me walking down, he's literally like cornering me and saying, okay, I'm going to ask you all these questions I have. And I think, bring them on, because I know I can't answer all of them. But there's people are thinking along the lines of how do I get a better plant? How do I get a better crop? And how do I manage these molds? And, um, you know, the future is bright. Because I think at some point we are going to get a handle on all of these we're, we're going to find ways around managing uh, development of all these different diseases. So there's I mean, one. This is just one. This is this is just one facet of the cannabis industry. It's literally every single arm, every single you know niche of the cannabis industry has just as many questions. Just as every time you answer one thing, you've got ten more questions that just popped up. And so I think that's what makes reading these cannabis papers so interesting. Is that it is always dense research with a lot more to do. Whereas I think in other fields, you know, they try to do their research questions and then they split them up into little pieces and try to, you know, publish them in little pieces because there really isn't that much left, you know, that's exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is what part of what makes cannabis science so cool. Yeah. It's like the world has developed all of these techniques of pest management, but for like general agriculture while cannabis was being like shunned away and now cannabis is back, but then it's also being attacked by all these pathogens now, which is crazy, but it's kind of just a part of life. (laughs) I think there's like a combination of things too, um, because like right now we have these mass scale production facilities. We also have a lot of employees in those facilities who can bring their cameras. And so like, you can actually document a lot of these things that are kind of like don't look normal um and it's very cool because like i worked in a big facility and i've just seen so many plants and after a while like you get an understanding of what a normal plant looks like so then everything that looks sort of out of that norm becomes very interesting because you want to know like why is the plant doing that how can we fix this is this potentially like you know um going to be harmful for the um final product or is it going to be beneficial um there's a lot of like interesting parts about it and the cool part is that we are in the country where research actually can be funded for this purpose um and having companies that are open to working with scientists is also i think um really cool because as we said in the beginning, like a lot of these facilities are sort of denying having these diseases, but I think it's not really something to be ashamed of because when you're doing something on a mass scale, you are going to run into some issues um, and kind of like being open about them and practically trying to prevent them and also like, you know, work with people who can come up with sort of like a guideline for everyone to deal with. Like, like I think that's really important. And so um, thank you for doing all your work. It's uh really cool to get to talk to you in person um and it's just the plant is so cool and there's so many things that are happening in it i wish we could you know cover them all so many questions but i don't know i feel like we've covered a lot here and this is so valuable it's amazing i guess one kind of quite funny question i have is like do you see more efficiency or like 
safety in growing indoors in large facilities or outdoor because you don't have that control outdoors, but you can kind of control indoor, but still, once you have an infection, it's not going to just go away. Yeah, so, the, I mean, clearly, uh, outdoors has the advantage that it's much cheaper, right? You can grow you can grow things much cheaper outdoors than you can indoors, but um, I, certainly the environment is, is the key. I mean, you've got, you know, storms and rains and hailstorms coming out of nowhere and destroying crops where certainly indoors you have better better protection you have no no issues with weeds you know weeds are important uh, we don't see weeds obviously indoors uh, weeds outdoors are a big competitor for things like hemp as well as a lot of insects and nematodes i mean we don't see a lot of nematodes either unless you're growing in soil um, so there's challenges outdoors that we don't encounter indoors Insects, uh, certainly we get insects indoors, but there's way more outdoors that are flying around, you have no control. And then other animals like deer and rodents and, and things flying above, doing all sorts of weird stuff on your plants. Uh, you don't have a lot of that going on indoors. So um, I'm a proponent for something that's you know medically used, medicinally used or recreational use. You gotta control as many variables as you can. And whether it's indoors in a greenhouse or whether it's indoors in a growing room where you've, you've got artificial lighting, you've eliminated all these other variables outside that, um, you, you know, are, are going to be a problem for, for a plant that's not just can be washed, right? And, and you're consuming it in, in a different way than you would a tomato or a potato. And so I, I think anything that's medicinal um, should be under really controlled environments. Now, hemp is a different story because if you're going to extract and, and produce hemp oil or, or CBD, you can eliminate many of these, the impact of many of these variables other than, of course, on your yield. And you can't grow hemp indoors. I mean, it wouldn't be economically feasible. But certainly for cannabis, high-quality cannabis, I believe, is, uh, oh yeah, hemp indoors? Okay. Well, it's, you know, it's CBD type. We're, right. Technically hemp in the U.S., yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we will be for sure. Okay, so that you'll get a better quality product out of that than than if you would outdoors. But there's limitations too, so yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we really do appreciate it for sure. I really appreciate it because we get to do some fun things together, man. I never thought I'd be able to say that. That's for sure. So thanks again, all the Canada Book Club kids as well. Thank you. To everybody who listens to us on Resonate Radio, thanks for hanging out with us again for another episode of the Canna Book Club. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, all of the fun places. We really appreciate it if you leave the review, and we will see you all next time.